0: Hello, friends. I'm Wayne Shepherd, inviting you to listen to the following Bible teaching message by Paul Scharf. Paul is a church ministries representative for the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, serving in the Midwest. You'll find all of his ministry resources at sermonaudio.com slash where he provides new content on a regular basis, including a weekly column that he writes, along with news and updates. Right now, we encourage you to follow along as we open God's Word for today's presentation. It's our prayer that the Lord God will use this teaching to bring glory to Himself and to work faith in each of our hearts. Here now with the sermon is Paul Sharf. Good morning. It is uh, wonderful to be back with you, and uh, we are Paul and Lynette Sharf, privileged to represent the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, as Ron prayed for this morning, and as most of you know, unless there's someone here we haven't met yet, we welcome all of you and uh, we're glad to be welcomed by you to be with you as uh, your guests once again this morning. And I just want to remind you, uh, we have a few literature items from the Friends of Israel on the back ledge. We'll leave those here after today. Uh, So you can make use of them. They're all free for you to take but if you would like to uh, sign up before we go today for a free subscription if you're not already getting it to our 80 year old magazine Israel My Glory. It goes all over the world and we want everyone to read it and we want to make sure you get it if you're not and if you're interested you can sign up for that just before we go today. It has been wonderful to be with you for these uh, two additional weeks here. Last week and today, and uh, our time with you, and we praise the Lord for the opportunity to look into the book of 2 Corinthians together over these Sundays, and we're going to turn back there today, and we're thinking about principles for living and ministering by grace, especially in the times in which we live that we've sung about this morning. Our hymns have fit right in with our theme and we're going to be focusing in this morning mostly in 2 Corinthians 4, thinking about how do we minister in such a world in which we live today with utmost effectiveness? How are we to serve the Lord here at the end of the age in the deepening darkness that's descending upon our culture? And certainly, in the midst of that, we have to ask ourselves, what were the standards that the Apostle Paul employed, yes, demanded, for his ministry of himself and of his fellow laborers? What was Paul's model for ministry? How can he teach us how to serve the Lord in this time in which we live? How did he stand in the face of tremendous opposition in his day being slandered and falsely accused by the false apostles who had infiltrated the church at Corinth, which we talked about just briefly last time? How did Paul contend with growing heresy and apostasy in this church which he had planted and for which he had given so much of his time and energy and strength? How did Paul deal with all of these things, even as we saw last week in the midst of suffering? Now those are lots of questions, and really Paul answers them in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We don't have time this morning to go through every last part of them, and to go through certainly not all of the book, but I encourage you to do that as we go. As I left off last week saying, I hope you... We'll continue to search the scriptures and read and build on what we're thinking about here in the book of 2 Corinthians. We left off in chapter 1. We gave kind of a overall introduction and went into the text in chapter 1 and really trying to introduce a theme that I'm talking about here in these two weeks. So that again is living and serving the Lord by grace in this age of grace, following Paul's model for ministry, as he lays it out here in the book of 2 Corinthians, his most personal epistle of all that he wrote, but also it's given in the midst of this context of church ministry in Corinth and ministry amidst difficulty and suffering. And we had left off thinking about chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, and drawing on a outline by the late Dr. Warren Weersby that I can't improve upon, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, talk about the circumstances around us. And you may remember that Paul speaks of a time when he despaired even of life and yet found that in that moment of incredible despair that his trust was in God. We should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And we trust that, yes, he has delivered us, he is delivering us, he will deliver us. And so, therefore, we can pray and give thanks to God. Now, that's all the farther we got with uh, Dr. Wearsby's outline. Let me just share the rest of it quickly, and I'll let you fill in the blanks as you read on your own. But in verses 12 through 22 of chapter 1, We read about the criticism against us. Imagine a pastor or a Christian leader having criticism against him, right? But here Paul is dealing with criticism against him coming from, yes, even this church at Corinth for which he had sacrificed so much, from the false apostles who portrayed themselves as eminently qualified, eloquent, expert, genius, far above the Apostle Paul. They accused him of all kinds of horrible things. They said he's a hypocrite, he's out for your money, and so forth. And yet it was these very false apostles, and you can read more about them in chapter 11 and chapter 12 of the book, they were ministers of Satan, sent to confuse and bring turmoil in the church at Corinth. And it was they who could have learned so much from Paul. And it was they who were causing so much turmoil and trouble here in the church. And Paul says, we can boast in the testimony of our conscience. Verse 12, we have conducted ourselves in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. There you see the contrast that he's going to develop through this whole book of 2 Corinthians. Fleshly wisdom versus the grace of God. How do we live and serve the Lord by grace? Principles of grace. And I encourage you even to go through the book, take a colored pencil or highlighter, and highlight the words that exemplify principles of living and serving the Lord by grace. These power words that Paul keeps using throughout the book, like trust and pray and thanks and the grace of God. And there are more of them that we'll see as we go. Paul is telling us how to live and serve the Lord by grace. Sin is not having dominion over us during this age of the church, the age of grace. Romans 6.14 says, Because we're not under the law of Moses, we're under the grace of God. We're plugged into a system of God's grace. And we need to understand the principles of living and serving the Lord by his grace for this church age. Paul develops this in writing about this criticism that he suffered and then he talks in verse uh, 23 through 211. And we won't have time to go through this section, but he talks about the concern within us. And then he finishes uh, this portion here, according to Dr. Wiersbe's outline anyway, verse 12 and 13 of chapter 2, the choices before us. It gives you a feeling of the conflict that Paul has within himself as he's writing to the Corinthians, as he's detailing all of these issues, but in the midst of all of it, As Paul is sorting through all of these things, he wants to live with a clear conscience to serve the Lord, to serve empowered by the grace of God and to model and exemplify the grace of God and principles of living and serving by grace. And now with that, we're going to turn into chapter 4 this morning. And again... Uh, It would be wonderful if we had opportunity. We could go through chapters 2 and 3 and then come into chapter 4. We'll just touch a little bit on chapter 3 this morning as our introduction to chapter 4 because Paul says in chapter 3, verse 12, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Paul has just finished telling the Corinthians, you, you are our letters you're looking, the false apostles have told you that you should check our credentials, should check us for letters of, of authority, like they've presented you, allegedly from the Jerusalem church, is what is going on here in the book. Paul says, No, you're our letters. It's not written with ink, but it's written on your hearts by the Spirit of God. Because. You have received the gospel. You have received the grace of God through the message we have shared. And you're our living epistles. And we have such hope in the midst of suffering and, yes, coming out of despair. And we're going to speak very boldly. And Paul develops this theme as he ends chapter 3. And he refers back to Exodus 33 and 34. And Moses wearing a veil. Remember that incident? So that the children of Israel did not see the glory that was on his face after he'd received the tablets of the law. They couldn't look at his face because of the brightness. But then also it was to hide the fact that the glory was passing away after a time. And Paul says, Moses put a veil over his face, verse 13, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. And then he changes this metaphor of the veil, and he says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil, he says, remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. As the Jewish people, we know Romans 11 25 tells us that just for a time, and only in some of them, but there is a partial, a temporary blindness or hardening toward the gospel of their Messiah. One day that, that blindness will be taken away and all Israel will be saved. But at this time, there's a blindness, there's a uh, hardening so that they cannot see, they will not believe. Paul says it's like a veil over their... Minds and hearts spiritually covering their eyes, and it affects their understanding even of the Old Testament because they have not had the veil taken away with the gospel of Christ. By the way, the false apostles, the super apostles who had come into Corinth, were teaching, and if you will, an Old Testament based christianity It was a heretical mixture of law and grace. And it, it eventually, eventually resulted in Corinth in actually in a message that was very appealing to the culture there, a licentious message uh, of ultimately what Paul describes in chapter 12, verse 21. He was afraid he would come and he would find that Many in the church have not repented of uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, which they have practiced. It seems to me and through the book, these are the results of, of the false teaching, in part, of the false apostles. All these things are going on in Corinth. And Paul is talking about here the idea of unbelievers being veiled to the truth. Paul says in 3.15, Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. He's going back here to the Jewish people who are unbelievers, but he's going to apply this to anyone in chapter 4 whose heart and mind are veiled. And he says in verse 16, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom to understand the message of, Yes, of the Gospel and of the Old Testament that lays the foundation for all of it. And so we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And now Paul comes into chapter 4, where he's really talking here about, again, principles of ministering and serving the Lord enduring in the midst of opposition and through all of it, living and serving the Lord by grace. And he says, here's one of those grace principles in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. He's going to repeat that same phrase in, in verse 16. We do not lose heart. You know, it's a very interesting word that's used several times in the New Testament. It's translated grow weary in chapter 6, verse 9 of the book of, Gal- of Galatians. Let us not grow weary in doing well. And the idea in the original, it's a compound word that has as a part of its root, the concept of evil. It is not simply a reference to failing to persevere, failing to continue, refusing to quit, though those are involved in it. But it's actually, it involves the concept that when you do quit, when you do fail, when you do refuse to endure, You are committing a moral failure. You are doing evil. You are giving in to evil. Paul says we do not lose heart. We do not grow weary in doing well. And he says in verse 2 then, we have renounced the hidden things of shame. These are principles on which Paul built his ministry. We have renounced the hidden things of shame. We can infer that this is uh, a complaint that has been lodged against him by the false apostles. Oh, Paul is a hypocrite. In his personal, private life, he is shameful. Paul says, No, we have renounced the hidden things of shame. And then he gives us some very interesting descriptive words here about his ministry. That follow, He says, we're not walking in craftiness. We're not walking in craftiness. That, again, is a very interesting word used several times. We won't be able to trace all the references in the New Testament, but one other place where it's used is here in the book of 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. We're all aware, I think, of the temptation of Satan of Eve Paul says he used craftiness what does the word craftiness mean the original again here it has a very interesting concept it is literally the idea of doing anything being willing to do anything Satan was willing to do anything to tempt Eve If you ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, as you're thinking of returning to Corinth, as you're dealing with this congregation, you're looking out over the congregation in your mind's eye as you write this epistle, Paul, are you willing to do anything to reach the Corinthian people? You know what Paul would say? No. We're not willing to do anything. We don't just do anything. We're not crafty. We're not cunning. We don't just do anything. You see, it wasn't a level playing field. The false teachers, the false apostles, they'll do anything. Paul won't do anything. The righteous will always be at a disadvantage in this world, won't they? Because we won't do anything. He says, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. This is another very interesting word in the original, and it's the idea of uh, goes back to those who would sell make and sell wine. And if they would uh, put take the wine and dilute it with water and then sell it as the original wine, they were being deceitful by this term in the Greek language. Paul says, we don't handle the Word of God that way. We don't manipulate or massage the message, Or the audience. We don't handle the word of God deceitfully. We're not like those chapter 2 verse 17. Like so many who are out peddling the word of God. We don't do anything. We don't handle the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth. Commending ourselves to every man's. Note that word. Conscience. We've seen that before, haven't we now? Chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, we have a clear conscience and we're appealing to you in your conscience. Now what does the conscience do? Well, the conscience, often misunderstood, it does not tell us what is right. It tells us to do right. But we have to inform our conscience as to what is right so that it will be correct, like setting an alarm clock. The clock can't tell you the time unless you set the time and then the alarm will go off at the right time. The conscience has to be educated because its role in us, in as uh, fallen sinners, it tells us to do right, but it doesn't know what is right until that's inputted into our conscience. But the other thing the conscience can do is the conscience can hear and understand and receive the self-authenticating Word of God, the message of our Creator, and realize that it is hearing the very Word of God that cuts to the division of even soul and spirit and goes into the depths of our being. And when our conscience is educated by the Word of God, then it is going to tell us to do, of course, what it says. I'd like to read again, as I did last week, Second Corinthians 4 here, these opening verses from the English Standard Version. They're so beautifully rendered here in the ESV. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And Paul says, now, it's not up to us as ministers to ensure the results of all of this. Because remember the veil imagery? The fact is there are people in this world who have a veil over their hearts and minds. They do not receive the truth. And it's not our role to manipulate them or to change the message to cater to them or to use fleshly wisdom in an attempt to reach them. We don't just do anything. We realize, we recognize the fact, verse 3, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Because the God of this age has blinded their minds, verse 4. These who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Here in the midst of this practical passage, Paul delves into a very... uh, poignant theological point talking about Christ as the image of God. We know that we are made in the image of God but Christ is the very image of God. And Paul speaks this way also in Colossians 1.15. There's so many things here more than we can cover this morning. So we move on to verse 5 where Paul says we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Now, if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to write next to the word bondservant the word slaves, because that's what we are. Translators don't like to use that word, and basically no major translation does because obvious connotations it has, but that's the Greek word. Paul says, we are slaves for Jesus' sake. We are your slaves. We are slaves for the gospel of Jesus Christ to do his will. This is involved in living by grace. We are dedicated. We are totally under the command of Jesus Christ to the extent that it is possible in our finite and fallen humanity. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 6. How are we going to relate to these people whose minds and hearts are veiled to the gospel? Paul says, It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me again read from the ESV these last verses. What we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's Genesis 1, of course. Let there be light. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me just share with you this morning the message that Paul is explaining, the message for which he is a slave of Jesus Christ, that Christ is indeed the image of God. He's the eternal Son of God who came to this earth. Talk about becoming a servant, becoming a slave. He came not to be served, but to serve. He took humanity upon himself adding it to his, to his person as eternal God, he added a human nature also. Became also a man, died on the cross in our place for our sins so we could have forgiveness of sin if we trust in him alone. He died for us and was buried and rose again so we could have the forgiveness of sin and eternal life if we trust in him By faith alone. Have you received Jesus Christ? Have you received the gift recognizing you are a sinner? I am a sinner who owes a debt we can never pay. Has that veil been lifted off your heart and mind to trust in Jesus Christ alone? If not, I would beg of you to trust in him even right now and today. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Our time is fleeting from us and we must close and we will not be able to go through this entire chapter. But I just want to share a a couple other major issues with you before our time is gone. Verse 7, Paul continues. He says, we have this treasure. Now don't miss that part. We have a treasure. God has entrusted us with something. It's more valuable than gold, silver, stocks, bonds, retirement funds, Houses, lands, we have a treasure. I hope that uh, you as the congregation here of Bad Axe Church realize God has entrusted you with a with a great treasure in your ministry here. It's extremely valuable. It cannot be purchased with money. It should never be sold for money. Paul says we have this treasure, but look what, how we're carrying it around. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Oh, that sounds so nice, doesn't it? Earthen vessels. Your translation may say something like, uh, jars of clay. You know what Paul is really talking about? What he's really writing in the original? We could even make it worse than this. You might be able to imagine it, but for sake of polite society here, I'll just say it like this. We're carrying our treasure around in waste baskets. We're, we're carrying our treasures around here. God has entrusted, a, he's put the treasure in, but he's put it into a wastebasket that we use to carry it around. That's us, we're slaves. We're just vessels of clay, just earthen vessels, which sounds you know, kind of eloquent at first glance, but really isn't meant to be. We're, we're vessels of dishonor second timothy 220 not in a moral sense i trust but in a value sense in terms of our place in this you see it's not about us it's about the ministry that god has given to us that's where the value and the message and he can take an earthen vessel he can take a slave and use him when that person he or she realizes where the real value is. Paul's going to develop that through the next couple of chapters here. Why why does he do it this way? That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So when they hear the message, they watch the ministry and they don't go away saying, look how great he is, look how great she is. No, but look how great God is. Look how great Christ is. Look how great the gospel is. What a wonderful message we have. That's the treasure. And therefore, we suffer in this life. God allows suffering. He allows us, his slaves, his wastebaskets, to take a beating sometimes. Paul talks about this as he does throughout the book, chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 12. He talks about it in the next verses. He says, verse 10, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus he uses a very interesting, unique word there for dying. It's, t- it's talking about the death process. It's an unusual word, not the normal word for death, the death of Christ that's even used in the next verse. He says we are, we are plugged into the dying of Jesus Christ. We have a connection. It's not that Jesus is still dying on the cross. Not that there's a continual reoffering of his sacrifice, as some teach, on a regular basis, no. Not that he's still paying for our sins or hasn't paid for them or we're going to pay for them. No, but it's in, there's a sense in which even though Jesus has died and was buried and rose and he's ascended to heaven and he's no longer dead and he's no longer dying, but his death process that he endured on the cross, we have a, we have a connection to it. As Paul said in Galatians 6, 17, we're bearing in our body the marks of the Lord Jesus. When we suffer, we're carrying about in our body the dying, the death process of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. You see the contrast? We're earthen vessels, but God's power can be displayed through us. We're dying like Jesus... But Jesus' life then can be manifested through us. We who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Again, principles of living by grace, living and serving by the grace of God in this church age, recognizing our connection to the death and to the resurrection, and that the life of Jesus, when others look at our ministry, that they see not us dying, but Christ living through us. And Paul develops this further. We're going to go to the end of the chapter and we're going to close here. Our time is gone, but look with me please at verse 16 where Paul says again and he repeats this line, we do not lose heart. We're not going to commit the evil of losing heart. We're not going to morally fail by quitting on the grace of God. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet, we're, yet the inward man, here's the contrast again, our outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. Our outward man is, is showing the effects of the dying process. Our inward man is showing the new life of Jesus Christ, growing in health and vitality day by day. For our, notice verse 17, our light affliction. Do we have anybody here today with a light affliction? Anyone? Our light affliction. Well, why is the affliction light? We've prayed for people this morning. They have afflictions anything, or anything but light. Oh, but it's in terms of the contrast, you see. It depends what you're comparing it to, right? Our light affliction which is but for a moment. You know you can endure almost anything for just a moment. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. It's working for us. God is working all things for good to those who love him. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's working for us. In our afflictions, in our dying with Christ, in our weakness, He's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The more that you suffer, the more your affliction, like the athlete, building up, remaining under, staying under, pressing up the weight, building up the resistance the more capacity you will have to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ in this life and especially in the life to come. And Paul says, therefore, verse 18, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. How in the world are you going to look at things that are not seen? (laughs) Only through what? The eyes of faith. We're not looking at what's seen. If we look at what's seen, we have a horrible Terrible, skewed picture. Think of the disciples standing at the cross of Christ if they had looked only at what could be seen that day, at that time. They have a very skewed view of what was really going on, wouldn't they? That's the same with us in our world today. We look at what's seen. We watch the news. Uh, we, we see the, the headlines. We look at what's happening in the world. What an utter, total complete chaos in which we live. But you see, that's not the real picture. You have to have the eyes of faith that look with the lens of the word of God past what is seen to what is unseen. Past what is temporary to what is eternal. Past the physical to the spiritual. And then with the real understanding of what God is doing in you and in the world and in the ministry that he's given to you in this world, with that knowledge at hand, then we do not lose heart. We want to live and serve the Lord by grace according to the principles given to us and modeled through the Apostle Paul. And I pray that God will help you that he will help us and you pray for us i ask mutually to do just that father we thank you for this time in your word today i pray that you will use it to encourage each one of us here and to bring glory to yourself for we pray in jesus name